Welcome to episode two of the Horrigan Horrigan Hooligans. Horrigan Hulors? Horrigan Hulors. The Horrigan the Horror Hooligan Podcast. That's episode two Scream. Scream. So we're gonna start this episode as our hero Sydney Prescott wakes up from what turns out to be a pretty significant nap over the course of her life. Yes. Uh, it's a solid maybe like three hours of sleep, but oh, that three hours of sleep was not enough because she's about to encounter a bunch of bullshit that she never knew she would be dealing with. Right, buckle up. I hope it was worth it. You're going to lose a lot of sleep in the future. Her fucking life has turned upside down once again. You know, she's had to go through mother's death, but <laughs> let's just make it more complicated. Yep, that's not enough. So she wakes up. She she notices it's all dark, and, you know, I'm sure, just like many of us, she went to sleep and woke up and didn't even know what year it was. She was like, mm-hmm. did Y2K come and pass? Jeez, I felt like I slept forever. So she's walking around, kind of shuffling, and she gets a phone call. And it's this creepy voice. Well, no, at first she gets a call from Tatum, because they have plans. Oh, right. And they're supposed to... She's supposed to pick up Sydney... They're supposed to watch, I forget what the movie is, but it's a Tom Cruise movie, and if you pause it just right, you can see his penis, and I love that line. <laughs> That's right. Because uh, Kevin Williamson has said that he wrote that the line, he gets shit for all the time, because he wrote it. And I'm like, well, that's such like a teenage girl thing to say, though. That is. Like... Who who hasn't gone back and rewatched the old uh, Teen Wolf with Michael J. Fox? Where if you pause it just right, you can see in the bleachers there's a guy with his dick out. Did you know about that? I've <laughs> seen the Rescuers Down Under, where you can see the boobs in the background. Okay, all right. Or Lion King, where you see sex, sex. spelled out in mm-hmm. stars. But no, or... I can't say that I've seen Bleacher Dick before. Yeah, Teen Wolf, if you pause it just right near the very end, one of the extras has whipped out his, his dick and it made the, the final cut. I wouldn't expect you to know much about, like, frame-perfect pausing to see penises. Right. Doesn't seem like it's in your wheelhouse. No, definitely definitely nothing that I've Googled before. Yeah, right. We'll leave that to, like, my expertise, I guess. I'll take on that role. I'll make the sacrifice. Yes, that, that sounds like a burden befitting of you. So Tatum says she will be by soon to come get Sydney. Sydney hangs up, instantly gets a call. We hear a familiar voice. Yes, and he says, what's your favorite scary movie? And Sid shuts it down. She says, I don't really like scary movies. Also, she assumes that it's Randy. Because everyone assumes (laughs) that the killer's Randy for some reason. He's just a little weird, and he's creepy, and, you know, eerie piano makes you think of movie nerds. I guess so. So she says, you know, Randy, I don't like those movies. They're insulting. It's always about some big-titted girl who should be running out the front door but runs upstairs instead and blah, blah, blah. You know, foreshadowing to the choices she's literally about to make in moments. Right. You know, shout back to that, you know, meta stuff, kind of the, the, whole, yes, the whole meta, meta atmosphere of, the of, of the film in general. And, you know, the the killer goes on and starts taunting her, I'm outside your house. And she says, oh, yeah, you're outside my house? Well, check this out. So she just opens Steps up the front outside. door and she walks out onto that gorgeous wraparound porch. Oh, my God. <laughs> the houses in this movie are so great. <laughs> it's fantastic. I'd love to have half the porch this house. Exactly. Had. But so, so she's taunting him. She's so, like picking her nose saying, what am I doing, Randy? What am I doing? As she walks around, she turns the corner of the house, leaving the front door completely out of view. Right. And that as, scared. as she's taunting the killer, there is, or who she thinks might be Randy, there is a distinct amount of silence from the killer in this time. Mm-hmm. And um, during which we presume they snuck into Sydney's house through her open door mm-hmm. uh, that she left there while she was taunting them. And after she had gotten her fill of taunting, she goes back inside. She locks the door. She puts the chain on. And then, motherfucker, wouldn't you know it, killer's in the closet right behind her. <laughs> out of the closet, attacks her. She fights him off. 
she does a great job. At one point, he does slam her head on the ground, and you think, oh, this is it. Sydney can't recover from that. Game over. Concussion. Now she handles it like a yeah, fucking lineman. We discover that Sydney, for the first time in many moments in this film, is great at kicking things. It's one of her Ooh, strengths, really. Yes. She loves a good kick. A kick to the chest, a kick to the face, kicking feet as she's crawling through a tiny... Tiny exit in a van that we will get to because that tiny exit doesn't make sense, but we'll talk about it. No, it doesn't. And there's there's one one really strong point that we should emphasize that the killers should take advantage of. And, you know, not that we are supporting anybody go out there and commit crimes or anything, but if you do happen to be in a position to co- commit some crimes and a lesson that you should take from horror movies in general is do not relish the moment. You should take the kill shot. If you get the opportunity for the kill shot, you take it. Because if you just hesitate for a moment, you have lost the opportunity and you're going to get caught. So just you know, do what Ghostface didn't do and don't hesitate. Murder as soon as you have any kind of chance because Ghostface plays with his victims far too often in this movie and it shows with what the body count is. It's an impressive body count, but when you look at the scope of who was intended to die, yes. a little less impressive. Because he, he got opportunities to get to Sydney, but you know, she's running away. Granted, this is her house, this is home home base. True. You know, she is very familiar and uh, she winds up getting away and boom, the door jam from the first scene, comes mm-hmm. in clutch, and she opens it just in time to thwart the killer coming into her room after her. And then we get to see one of my favorite things that a horror film has, has ever done. It's more problematic now, but the 90s definitely dealt with it, and that's the use of cell phones. Mm. So instead of using a cell phone, because that becomes a very big deal that Billy has one soon, she goes to her computer, and I didn't know this was a service, but I guess it, I'm, I'm assuming it was, they just invented it for the film. It's like a deaf dial for 911. It reminded me of Courage the Cowardly Dog when he goes yeah. in there and the computer's like, oh, are you really in trouble? Yeah, it's bizarre. <laughs> so she deaf dials 911. The killer stops, she's freaking out. Billy pops up through the window. Right, just Being all moments Billy. after the, the killer runs away. Billy pops through, <gasps> and he drops his cell phone. Drops his cell phone, Sydney freaks out, the cops show up, Sydney runs downstairs because she's scared of, like, Billy now. Oh, 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 opens the door, and Dewey is standing there holding the killer's mask up. We get a jump scare God by both it. of them. Officer Doofy. Officer Dewey, doing his, doing his worst, but what? doing his best. And, and, you know, I think that Dewey is a, a sort of meta joke. To all of those incompetent cops Very that much are so. so prevalent throughout, they just make him uh, lovable. Horror movies, yes, mm-hmm. they just made him kind of lovable. He doesn't mean to be so incompetent, but gosh, exactly. I'm doing my best, Mister. Right. So, do you think that this attack on Sydney was Stu or Billy? Because they really could have. I, I could see it playing out in either way. I really think that the attack on Sydney was Billy. And that it was intentionally done in a manner to have him arrested. I think that, you know, with all of the research and all of the cunning that that Billy and Stu have put into this situation as a whole, I do think that they had planned it out and they said, oh, well, you know, then I'm going to have a cell phone. Then I'm going to get arrested. They're going to think it's me. And then something's going to happen that's going to show that it's not me. Right. I do think that this was a very strong red herring that they dropped with the phone. Gotcha. I mean, it was effective. Or I guess a red herring's red herring. Well, would it be a red herring? Or it's, I guess it's just a misdirect because yes. a red herring is where you are or it's forced not to actually, suspect someone. Yeah. Right, where it's not so, yeah. actually... So this is a, a misdirect from the obvious answer, which is Billy... They're misdirecting Sydney and the audience at the same time. Because up until this point, why would we assume that there's there's two killers? So when right. activities do happen, we assume, okay, so Billy's definitely cleared. And so this is also the uh, time in the movie where we get to, um, we get the first demonstration of a Volkswagen defying gravity. 
and yes. you know this this little red Volkswagen, um, this Tatum's Volkswagen pulls up in front of Sydney's house and just fucking parks on a wall. This is parking on a vertical hill, and it is a an absolute fucking marvel of physics, and nobody will n- ever know how such a tiny car could have such a strong frictional resistance against falling. It just, it absolutely baffles me. But we also see that Gail Weathers didn't fucking bring any other clothes because she's still wearing her goddamn tennis suit. suit. And and we get to meet Kenny very briefly. Kenny is the cameraman. Doesn't play a large role. He's essentially cannon fodder and Gail's driver. And there to take Gail's abuse. Yeah, he's he's a whipping boy for Gail Weathers. So we're at the cop station sheriff burke is talking to billy and billy's dad don't worry sydney right says officer doofy and then we get a bunch of like weird adr lines of billy just screaming sydney's name and it makes no sense sydney it's very dramatic and you know you gotta believe me sydney as if like you know honestly she's the one that needs convincing in this situation because legitimately yeah the police are kind of the ones that you want to be convincing, you know, that it wasn't you. Yeah, because if you convince the law, then that will convince Sydney because you'll be innocent. Right, Don't or, you know, even if Sydney doesn't believe you and the law doesn't believe you, at least you're not in jail. Whereas, vice versa, you're still behind bars and doesn't matter what Sydney thinks. Pretty much. So Tatum comes in, makes fun of Dewey, Deputy <laughs> Doofus, is that what she says? Uh, yes, and uh, she also says something to the... Uh, she she belittles him so heavily Quite a throughout, bit. just publicly ridicules this man, and I love every moment of it, because not only is he an incompetent police officer, but he is... He, he likes the wherewithal to um, clap back at his, his baby sister. Richard, also, I'd like to let it be noted at this point that I made a very important note on my paper about how well um, Tatum pulls off a middle part. I just think that not everyone can pull off a middle part. It takes a real skill, and Rose McGowan brought that kind of power to the character of Tatum. I just, it really stuck out to me. Ballin'. That middle part really got me. And outside of the police station, as everything is wrapping up, Gail Weathers is due, is there on her bullshit, taunting Sydney, and uh, Sydney says something to the effect of, well, why don't you put it in your book? And Gail says, I'll send you a copy. Bam! Bam! And Sydney decks this bitch right in the mouth, pops her. Oh, it's great. Right in the face. And Tatum's living for it. Dewey's trying to be a good cop and be like, well, you shouldn't have done that. And Gail's just on the ground being punched. And then we cut get to wrecked. We get to see Tatum's room. Tatum's sleepover. So yeah. Tatum, is, I think Tatum's wearing like footy pajamas, if I remember correctly, and Sydney's wearing just like a like a matronly nighty because mm. she's always virginal and always frumpy. Fitting. And Tatum's just talking about how, oh, I'll give you a copy. Bam, bitch went down, and I love that Tatum <laughs> is just so like energetic about it. She's pumped. It's she's pumped. She just saw her best friend right. stand up for herself in a, yeah. in a very effective and public manner. And that is, see, that's empowering. Yes. Let me see Tatum's sweet matronly mother come and say, Sydney, you got a phone call. And Sydney takes it, and it's the ghost face killer voice. And he instantly says, looks like you fingered the wrong guy. You fingered the wrong guy. And oh, the foreshadowing oh. that that gave us. Oh, the... the, the, the <laughs> I loved it, and we will get to it because we have a lot right. of guys about it. There are a lot of men that get fingered in this movie, and um, you know, honestly, like well, she did finger Billy. And, and if you go into theories that we'll talk about later, a lot of people possibly got fucking fingered in this. We'll get to it. That's true. More than you may know. More than you may ever want to know. That's true. Yes. But you know, one way or another, Billy's in jail currently. Sydney's getting a taunting phone call. Nobody is safe, and this is unsettling. This is also the only time we get to see Dewey in an outfit that isn't his cop uniform. He's in a white t-shirt. 
Ooh, a plain white tea. You could say that, Delilah, if that's the life you want to live. I, that is exactly the life I want to live. Okay. So, somehow, after this terrifying phone call, Sydney manages to get to sleep and get to school on time the next day. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Before that, we could see Tatum's kitchen. And once again, shout out to that set designer. We get that tiny pink handprint. That is where that the tiny pink handprint comes raises in. raises so many questions. Is there a child in the house that we don't see? Does Tatum have abnormally small hands? Is that Dewey's handprint? Has it been saved since like the fifth grade? It was What's Tatum's, it doing by the stove? It was Tatum's handprint from when she was in third grade. Oh my they did God. a project in art class and her mom is extraordinarily proud of her and her achievements and is supportive of her every step of the way. And is proud to she hung it demonstrate in every room of the house they have. Okay. <laughs> I fully buy that. Okay, you're right. So we leave that unimportant scene minus the pink handprint. Go to school. We get a tiny cameo from Linda Blair at this point. Uh, Reagan from The Exorcist. She's playing one of the reporters. Right. She gets like a one-line cameo. Doesn't matter. They put her in there, and I was like, "Yes, you give Linda Blair a fucking paycheck. She deserves it." Right. And the headline here is the kid that they had arrested mm-hmm. is not the one. They right. ran the records on the cell phone, and they came to find that it was actually not the cell phone that was making those phone calls. Exactly. So Billy, we don't know that he's well. I think we know that he's out. We don't know what his plans are. So Sid and Tatum go to school, mind their business, basically, and then a prank is pulled, not on Sydney specifically, but on, on the, the school. Somebody comes out in the father death ghost face costume, runs down the hall shrieking. Booga, 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 booga. Scares Sydney. She can't handle it, so she runs off. Triggers her. And she runs into Billy Loomis. Who, I'd like to point out, is wearing the exact same clothes he was wearing when he went to jail. Did he uh, not shower? He didn't even shower before he went to school? That's disgusting, that Billy. Is. Like, you had time. What's so pressing? Getting oh. in to see Sydney? Yeah. So they Harass have, Sydney about her dead mom. Basically, so they had a confrontation where it's very passive-aggressive at first about how Billy got sent to jail and Sid's like, I'm sorry, I know that it was not you. Even though she's still suspicious, we find out later. That's well, the point. And it's extraordinarily creepy and possessive throughout. Like, the way that, uh, you know, through this conversation, he, you know, tells her, hey, you know, you've been really lingering on your the fact that your mom died. Oh, yeah, you know, and talking about how, like, it's not interfering with our relationship. Yeah, it's not fair to me that you're not over this. Yeah, the, the like you can't imagine touching me because of your mom's dead death a year ago. And Sydney's like, sorry, but I don't fit into your perfect existence and runs off into a bathroom. Into a bathroom. So she's but So she thinks that she's before, alone. What happens before that? Before we get in there, we see Henry Motherfucking Winkler, the Fonz himself, the coach from Waterboy, walks in and we see him delivering the good justice to these two hooligans Hooligans who have been harassing the school with their antics involving this distasteful costume and this recent slaying of one of their classmates. And at first, the scene seems very much just like a principal, you know, um, admonishing these, like, kids and being like, yes, I, you did something very, very wrong. And then the kids are like, oh, it was just a prank. And Henry Winkler goes full crazy, grabs some scissors from his desk, starts very aggressively jabbing them, sounds like he's ripping their, like, clothes, and, like, sniffing at their faces. Henry Winkler would be fired. Yeah. Let it be known. These days, he'd be fired as fuck. Like, yes... Spoiler alert, he does get killed mildly soon. But, like, he would be fired. Fired. You're fired. It makes no sense. So the kids leave. Then we get the bathroom scene. Right. So Sydney's thinks she's alone, looking at the mirror, and she hears voices approaching, so she scuttles back into a stall. 
because she she's feeling very non-confrontational, very she's been, sensitive. Her mother died a year ago. Her boyfriend's an asshole. Someone that she kind of knew died. She's been attacked. It's a whole lot. It, it is a whole lot. So she just goes and she holds up in the stall and she hears what she she just just hears what these people have to say. So in walks a blonde cheerleader and her little psychic best friend who looks like like Tina Belcher if Tina Belcher went to Woodsboro. And this blonde actress, I wish I could tell you what her, her name was. I couldn't tell you. Also looked up what her other works were. Haven't seen them. Doesn't matter. She was told when she got hired, you're the bitchy blonde character. And she said, that's my only character trait. I'm going to give it to you. Yeah. I'm going to give you every ounce of bitch that I have. So you want bitchy blonde? I'll give you the bitchiest blonde. I have never seen such like a cunty dismissal of someone's trauma for no... As she far as she knows... She starts ripping on Sydney. Like, she doesn't even know that Sydney's there. She is solely just being a bitch to be a bitch. Right, just talking shit. And doing so much. She's overacting, but in the best way possible. Well, and to what audience, too? You know, right, you to have to think friend? about, like, well, and to, like, is this person really even her friend? She's just, right. she's really just on this malicious soapbox for no clearly visible reason. She just really fucking hates Sydney Prescott and thinks yeah. that Sydney went crazy a year from those does her talking about you know my mommy died a year ago straight up mocking her it's for some of the most like tragic type of circumstances. Insane oh, and I love her so much. My perfect high school bitch. Like she just uh she perfectly played the role and then the other friend, Tina Belcher, want to be. I'm sure that she said something, but I didn't pay attention because Blonde Bitch was just ruling that scene. Yeah, yeah, she was definitely running the stage. So they leave because they just had to come in to powder their nose, I guess. They don't do anything in the bathroom, they don't wash their hands even. They literally just come in, right? Just talk look at the mirror and talk. And they're, they're bitching, and then they leave. Is that what girls do in bathrooms? I shit, I don't know. According to 1996 horror films, it is. Yeah. So I'm going to have well, to say that's what it is. And, you know, according to um, 90s sitcoms and mm. other 90s media, I would have, I, I could only assume that most of a, the average female's socialization occurs in a bathroom. That's also factual. Yeah. So, you know, bathroom is very important for the 90s female population. Who knew? Historians will be shocked by this. Pivotal. So, Crucial. So they leave her alone. Sydney comes out, cries a little bit. She cries mm-hmm. a little bit in the mirror, looks at her, says, I'm not slow like my mom. And we get a very loud stage whisper of, Sydney. And she's like, what? Is someone in here with she's me? A, she said, hello? And then we get a weird close-up shot of the vent, which I never understand why it's in the film. I think it's to imply that the voice is coming from outside the door through the vent. Is that the implication? Yes, definitely. Because if if it's coming from the vent, then she doesn't have to worry about it inside the room. Right, she just has to wait for them to come in and then she can react to it then. Right. So she gets on the floor, which is disgusting. Girl, you're dirty. You're fucking nasty. You have some self-respect. Like, the town might think that your mom was a slut, but do they, do they know that you sit on the floor? Okay, um, like, so there's that, which is really gross and super icky, but she's looking underneath the um, stalls, and she sees this pair of black boots descend from a toilet, and we get the full next red herring of the boots. So now we have a specific red herring in a piece of clothing attached to the killer. So now, subliminally, when you see these chunky black boots, these chunky 90s punk goth black boots, you think, you think oh killer. shit, it's Ghostface. Exactly. So Sydney stands up, prepares herself, starts to walk towards the door, Ghostface comes out, she fights him off, escapes. So here's the banana bonkers part about that. The banana republic. Is, did, so was the plan for Stu to wait in the stall and Billy to trick Sydney into going into the bathroom by being terrible about her dead mother who Billy already hates we'll find out later because she was a slut whore according to him his words not mine I'd never call him a slut or a whore 
True. That's 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 well. Well, demeaning. personally, I think that it's more likely that it was Billy who was frustrated trying to anticipate her movements mm-hmm. and had gone in there preemptively in order to try and um, get her. Because, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's just, as we, we see Ghostface throughout the film, it seems like Billy is the one who's willing to take more risks in regards to being seen. Um you well, know, he, well the, he has an actual motive. Stu is just peer pressure. Right. And Billy so, has a reason to be doing all this. Yes. So I, I think that that, that is more likely Billy okay. in the bathroom. So we get this scene, and then we get the announcement that school's out. Forever. Oh, yeah. The music in this is a great little time capsule of like horror classics and then 90s current music. Although I do have a shameful story to admit too. So when the makeout scene happens between Billy and, and Sydney, I turned to John and I said, what is this weird like acoustic guitar music that's happening right now? And then we realized it was Don't Fear the Reaper. Don't Fear the Reaper. And I was like, how could I have so blindly missed that? Blue Oyster Cult cover. <laughs> I'm sorry, man, because that's a great song. Yeah. And I was just like, what is this weird like it's, 90s indie bullshit? It's a fantastic song. It was a fantastic. strange cover. It was yeah, extraordinarily It felt very weird acoustic guitar-y. So then school gets out. We get school's out for summer. It's great. Stu decides... Party at my place, impromptu party, schools out, why the fuck not? Party times. Boom. That's and right. Impromptu. We have another domino set up. We have another major event that we assume something will happen at. Right. And as all the kids are clearing out, everybody's heading to their to their house. They're celebrating this sudden summer. And we go into Henry Winkler's office and the principal is looking around and he gets this eerie feeling and he goes out into the hallway hello is anyone in there mm-hmm. and nobody's there and he's walking around and there's this, this honestly the scene is pretty drawn out it's a very and, long death scene for such an odd death right the way that it's and, handled. And so, you know, it's it's very long, very long. They the, they take their time with the punchline, and it's right when he starts feeling comfortable again. Bam! Ghostface jumps out from behind his door, kills Henry Winkler. And leading up to Henry, Henry Winkler's death, we also get the small cameo by, by Wes Craven in the Freddy Krueger sweater. That's true. And the fedora mopping the floor. Yes, and then a striped Henry, sweater. Yes. And then Henry McClure gets uh, attacked, and then we get that great eye shot with a ghost face, face in the eye. Yes. Ghost face, ghost face's reflection in Henry Winkler's eye, reminiscent of old Marianne's reflection of Mother from Psycho. Damn Yes, near. and then and getting like the like the like eye draining shots. Like horror really likes eyes. Yes. Cora loves to focus on like eyes and well, see how much you can see in an eye and how much damage you can do to an eye. The eye is the window to the soul and when you corrupt the eye or I don't know, something about soul draining. I don't know. Dead death soul is weird. Eaters. Death is weird. Soul soul eaters. I I'm hungry for some soul if you have some handy. I've never eaten a soul, but I would try it if I could add salt and pepper to it. Yeah, S&P, just medium rare, that is that is the best way to consume soul. Okay, good to know. I never yes. would have thought of that. Just just seared, seared three minutes each side, medium rare, you're good to go. Okay. So, we get Henry Winkler's death, and then we get one of the... I guess the bathroom scene is where they first really do it, but this is the one where it seems... The most just unnecessary for the inclusion that like happens. So Tatum and Sydney are on a porch, I believe, talking about things, and we find out that there's been rumors for a long time that Maureen Prescott was a giant slut. And Tatum's like, I'm not saying that they're right, but you can only hear that Richard Gere gerbil in an ass story so many times until you start to think it might be true. And Sydney's upset. And then 
they walk off and in the background we just see Ghostface was hanging out listening then scampers off. This is a weird trend where it goes back to back to back really of Ghostface unnecessarily being risky right, and being in showing... costume in public. Yes. There's, it makes there's, no sense. There's no need to be so conspicuous with it. Exactly. And in doing so, it takes away from the reality or the realism mm -hmm. of the situation. And, you know, this this could be one of the scenes that I would... I would be okay with them taking it out. The entirety of the scene. Yeah, I it would doesn't... actually be... Yeah, I don't think we need the backstory of Maureen being a slut here because Billy Loomis gives us that entire backstory later in a much more deep manner. Mm -hmm. so and they, and they, keeps, they keep driving that same point. Though. Right, to the point where Maureen's death almost seems like a red herring, and it kind of is a red herring until the last, like, twist... And then we find out that it's a misdirect that was never a misdirect. It's right. the actual motive without it seeming like it is. It's if that makes sense. Indirect, uh, yes. And and we'll we'll definitely dive into that more in uh, episode three yes. as we, but, we when get all there. the story comes out. So then we get right. the video store scene. Yes, and the video store scene is fantastic. Because this is, this is one of the greatest times in this movie where we get to see Randy really going in and showing his movie knowledge and showing yeah. how useful of a character overall he is. He's just blessing all of it. He's like, yeah, I'm the horror master here. If I was going to get through this, it, it is me. And we get a lot of great lines. We get to hear... Um, Randy referred to Billy as, like, Leatherface and asking why why Anthony Perkins is here. And, and if you were the main suspect in a crime, why would you be in the horror section? Right. And Stu's doing a great job of, like, teasing. Good, yeah, he's, like, deflecting while teasing and keeping the conversation going while trying to clear Billy's name. And it's all really well done. I love the taunt where, where you know, Stu said, you're just thinking this. You got a chance. It, you think that she'd, she'd date me now that... Uh, now that he's out of the question, not a chance. <laughs> like, ah, ah. No, it's great. And then and there's a really great line delivery that Stu does of the line as if that sounds like uh, how Alicia Silverstone says as if a share and clueless. And then Randy calls him um, Alicia. And I'm always like, I'm just like, oh, that was for me. Thank you. That meta shit, man. It's so great. And then Randy's screaming, you know, everyone's a suspect. You can't rule anybody out. Everyone and is it's a suspect. great since every character who interacts with, with Ghostface outside of Casey Becker assumes Ghostface is Randy. Yeah. So that's really good writing. I really because, enjoy it. You know, poor Randy, he's just like as innocent as could be, about as about as wholesome as you could hope. He's just a virtual and little nerd just trying to get with Sydney. He is, and... You know, as you guys will see in the next episode for a virgin, he sure does get fucked a lot. He does get fucked a lot for a virgin. It's unfortunate. So after after this um, Stu versus Randy showdown in the video store, mm -hmm. we get this fantastic shot that, like, I just you know, I I, I really enjoyed the the kind of I, I call it a ghost town shot mm -hmm. because there's there are a couple of angles where it goes through the town and to emphasize the impact that these uh, sudden slayings have had on the town, you are shown empty streets, empty mall, empty... People closing you know, the shops. Yes, it's, this it's, town is inactive. Yeah, it's and, very much and, the town that, that dreaded them sundown, that old slasher from the 60s, I think. Yes, and so, so as everything's shutting down, you start to really get this kind of eerie sense of, of the impact that these events have had on these people and especially in contrast or comparison to the current covid mm -hmm. conundrum that we're in yes it, it you know and honestly and you know here in, in our little town it doesn't really have much impact there's you know it doesn't seem like anything has changed but you see these these big cities where Places that are so heavily trafficked that haven't seen this light of traffic in decades are just completely deserted, and it was it was just something that I I saw that was yeah. significant to the context of our watching it. 
And then we get a tiny little clip it of clip it. After our conversation about Towelette, I'm mad at myself for, for saying that. I'm not getting into words that I hate right now, but Talet's on the list. I'll explain at a further date. So we get a especially tiny thing. Especially. Especially moist Talet. The, the most variety. unnecessary combination of words on the planet. So we get a scene between Sheriff Burke and Deputy Dewey. And we find out that they found a copy of Neil's phone. So Neil's a red herring again. Right. Sydney's dad. We see Dewey eating ice cream, which I always love. Strawberry ice cream. And then we see the sheriff put a cigarette out with, with his boot because he has the same chunky black boots. Now the Boom. sheriff is a suspect in the back of your mind. That's right. And we leave this scene to go to the most unnecessary scene in the film, if you ask me. It yes. borders really closely with the porch conversation and the TV watching scene earlier. TV watching has some merit, though, because we get to hear the year anniversaries coming up of Marine's death, so that's important. Right, but... The, the morning exposition with Billy already mm-hmm. told us that the anniversary was coming up. That is true. So, so I guess they really could have cut both. Yes. Truesies. I can see that. Now. So we're in a grocery store. <laughs> it doesn't take away the unnecessary grocery store scene. This grocery store is so unnecessary. Our two females, Sydney and Tamar, are talking about what's going to happen at the party. What's going to happen if like Billy shows up and blah, blah, blah. So they're doing some like party grocery shopping, I assume. And then as they're leaving, a door closes, like a fridge door for the refrigerated section, and we see Ghost's face reflection. So he's in the grocery store in with full his costume. Robe. With his robe, with his mm-hmm. mask, amongst the mass panic of everyone looking for him. This is no after sense. they have found... The costume at Sydney's house. Right. So the they know out there. They know what to look for. It's the unnecessarily riskiness, which doesn't make sense because we are led to believe that Billy and, and Stu have had this like year-long plan. Why are they getting so sloppy? It doesn't make sense. Well, and I don't see. I'm. I kind of as as we've been watching it and discussing it. I've kind of been going from they've had this year-long plan to. They did this killing. And then as it got closer, they revamped time, it. Well, as time went on, they wanted to do it again. Mm-hmm. They were missing that thrill. There was something you know, else. Somebody had, had created, you know, some, somebody got mad. Or even maybe it was, uh, was it Casey? Casey had um, broken, broken up, up with, with Stu. Stu. That's and, true. And so that just, and Stu said, you know, hey, Billy, let's... Uh, Let's start this up again, and they just kind of got carried away. Yeah, pretty much. So, after the scene, we get to the party scene. Now, there's one tiny plot detail that's not so important to this film. It becomes more important in Scream 2. But Maureen Prescott's murder is currently being blamed on a character named Cotton Weary, who we only see on the news in this movie. He's played by Lee Schreiber. Uh, he gets mentioned a couple times in this. Uh, but it's important to note that as far as Sydney is concerned, she thinks that Cotton Weary killed her mom. Just wanted to get that in there really quickly because it comes up later a little bit when Billy and Stu reveal their, like, master plan. I figure if we never mentioned Cotton Weary until then, it'd be weird to just throw him in. True. Yes. So we get to the party scene. Gail pulls up in her news van, not trying to be cognito at all. Nope. As that some other cars pull up. Medium muff. That medium muff. We'll get to that line so soon. I love it. So she gets her herself ready, gets her little camera out. Dewey shows up, escorts her inside. They walk in. First of all, Stu's wearing a Hugh Hefner robe. I want that to be noted very early on. And Tatum looks like fucking Daphne. Smoking it's bizarre. Jacket. I love it so much. So Dewey and Gail walk inside. She's left Kenny because Kenny can't go to a teenage party for some reason. She sets up her little spy camera, and Tatum's insulting her a bit. The guys at the party are complimenting her. Right, well, everybody's everybody's going off because she's a famous person. Right. She's objectively hot. And she's and... probably the most famous person in this town, too. So she is a right. celebrity for them, and she... For for 1996, Courtney Cox was hot. And and Tatum just does not like her because she was mean to her best friend, so she is going to insult her with some 
awesome alliteration. Good old media muff. Yeah. I love it. Media muff. Gives her the burn. And so she sneaks in the spy cam, throws it down, and we get our first view at the beer fridge. Almost. Because we find out that there's a delay. Because Gail and Dewey leave right after that. Go to the van and Kenny says, oh, there's a delay. How long did it take you to walk here? 30 seconds. Very important for the plot later. Seems minuscule right now. But right. it happens. And and every domino is important. So Stu asks Tatum to get him another beer. And Tatum goes to the garage. And it's yeah. sad. It is sad because she didn't even get to drink those beers that she got out of the fridge. No. So she goes, They're probably warm by now. Probably. Honestly, if they aren't shattered. She did throw quite a few out of the killer's crotch. And pour one out. So Tatum goes to the garage. Goes to the fridge, opens it up. Let it be known. I've seen this film several times. I've watched it twice, three times, because I watched it today just for fun with the commentary on, because I'm that kind of a person. The only items in this fridge are beer and eggs. Should I be worried? They are a well... Stu's household is a wealthy family, from what we can see. There's a surfboard in the house for no reason. Why does this fridge only have eggs and beer in it? Because that's that's the overflow fridge. That's the eggs and beer fridge? That is the eggs and beverage fridge. Because (laughs) fridge. It's a fridge. All the healthy things are up front. Or, even if we take it a step farther, um, their dietician brings Mm. the fresh ingredients with them on the daily as they come to cook for the family. I can buy that. So she's in the They're wealthy enough that they don't need stuff. Okay. Out of nowhere, a cat pops up. I don't remember seeing the cat before this, but a cat scurries across and it scares Tatum. Meow. Like, maybe it was in the house and I just wasn't paying attention. I don't know. The cat... Or was hiding in the garage somewhere. So it runs out, runs through the little cat door. They got it set up of that. And then Tatum goes back to the door. It's locked. Oh, no. Oh no. Oh no. So then she tries to go towards she goes towards the garage door, opens it up, it keeps on closing. Eventually she turns around and she sees Ghostface. She assumes it's just Randy playing a prank. Right. She walks up to him and she has all of the steam built up. She is chest out, ballsy little spitfire. Ready to fuck people up if she has to. She said, Randy, what the fuck are you doing? Sitting would be so mad if she saw you in that. What are you doing? Get out of here. Cut your shit out. Cut this out. Open the door. Get out of my way. And then Ghostface pulls out a knife. And she's like, oh, is this part where I'm supposed to beg for my life, Mr. Killer Man? And oh, she mocks him. Oh, you gonna kill me like one of your damsels? Oh. oh and but, but I want to be in the sequel. It's all great. It is great. It's, you know, from that from that meta perspective, she's making fun of the damsel in distress who, you know, she was kind of made out to be as a character overall anyway mm-hmm. with her uh, sexuality being so prevalent and the other, uh, the, the various, the best friend attribute and the other... Um, other aspects in which, you know, a typical horror movie, slasher movie character finds themselves dead in. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, so she, she kind of makes fun of that while also still falling uh, victim to it. Right. So, you know, it's just another way in which they... Another layer of meta. They, they hit the meta while also subverting it simultaneously. Exactly. It's very masterfully done. So she fights off Ghostface, throws some beer at him, hits him with some fridge doors. Then she runs towards the little doggy door. 10 out of 10 choreographed struggle. Oh, she does the best she can. I love it. She starts to, to crawl through. And this is what's odd to me. So she gets her titty tit tit tits through. But then she can't move any farther. I think she gets her her shoulders through one shoulder and like and then, one or or like okay. yeah she's just not you know for for being as fit and in good she's shape as she is she just is not very smart and or good at using her body so she was very ineffective at the way that she crawled through that door i guess so or attempted to right 
When Ghostface lifts up the garage door, it crushes her and blows a fuse, which no one else in the house hears is happening. The mu- the, right. the movie's too loud, right? <laughs> Royally fucks her up. So, here's one. I give props to this death scene because it is the one of the few times we see someone die not by a stab wound. Right. I give it that credit. I do, however, have the negative side of this film is so grounded in reality and seems like very much this could happen, except for this death scene. Now, side story. <laughs> Literally moments before we sat down to record episode one. 15 or 20 minutes before. We went out to John's garage to try to test to see if a dog, if a garage door could lift up a human being or if it would, like, putter out. We learned absolutely nothing. His, didn't, didn't learn a damn thing. I don't know. His uh, garage door has no doggy door, so we couldn't put a person in there. Right, we can, couldn't replicate the experiment, and, you know, honestly, I'm not sure what a 140-volt power rating indicates in regards to the opening power of an electric motor. So, the, or twisting power, whatever. So, I our scientific, no yeah, our, our research gave us nothing useful. Jack shit. Literally, <laughs> it was useless. Not even, not even nothing useful. It gave us nothing besides the fact we got to walk outside for a second. So that was cool. Right. It's a beautiful day. So her death is both fantastic and takes down the film only ever so slightly. Right. So Ghostface looks at his masterpiece of, of a death and then slips back into the house. And he says, right on. And then we That's get to see... That's all I need to do. Yep. And then we see Billy shows up to, to the party. Oh, I wonder where Billy came from. What a convenient time for Mr. Billy to show up. Shocking. And Billy looks so much like Johnny Depp in the movie Crybaby. It really throws me off. The, like, the, like dangly bangs and the, like, pouty lip, I'm a torn soul kind of vibe. Right. It really gets me. Yeah. So, Sydney decides to go upstairs with Very good old bopper. Billy. And we get a little scene of, um... Oh, meanwhile, during all this, what are Gail and Dewey doing? Because <laughs> we have, like, three separate movies happening at the same time. That's They're true. all balanced so well and all interwoven so well that it's not a deterrent from the film. It's done so well. But we definitely have party scene, Sid and Billy scene, Dewey and Gail scene. Yes, all very disparate. Dewey and Gale had uh, embarked on a little bit of a walk together. Yes. They they decided, you know, hey, there are some things going on. Let's uh, just take a walk. They, at some point during the walk, get word that um, they have found Neil Prescott's car. So they have an actual mission now. They're walking along. Uh, they almost get hit by a couple. Oh, no, I'm skipping way far ahead. We can't get to that part yet. They're just on a moonlit walk. You silly goose. I'm a silly little goose. Yep, they're just uh, seeking seeking a little bit of privacy at this point. And Kenny's in his van eating fucking Cheetos, watching kids party. What a fucking champ. Like, you go, go, Kenny. Go, go, Kenny. Enjoy the time you have left. So we get back to the party a little bit. There's some, like, movie talk. Nothing too important at this point. They're trying to, like, pick out a movie. And we cut back upstairs to good old Billy and Sydney. And they're talking about how life's a movie. And, and, and how, well, and everything's crazy. You know, uh, Sydney expresses to Billy how she's nervous about any sort of uh, sexual or physical expression mm-hmm. because of the impact that her mother had on other people. She doesn't want to fall into step with those same issues. Right. She is not the same person, and she's not going to fall folly to that. Mm-hmm. And at some point, I think that Billy compares her to Jodie Foster in Sounds of the Lambs. I feel like he says those words. I don't remember why. But they get on a conversation of, like, movies. And uh, Sydney's like, oh, but this isn't a movie, Billy. It's real life. And he's like... Well, life is just one giant movie. You just can't pick the genre. Blah 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 blah. Right. You don't. You don't get to pick the genre. And Sydney, 
Sydney uh, leans in real close, real sexy like, for this little like a 17, 18 year old frumpy woman and says, Ugh, I wish my movie was like a Meg Ryan movie or a good porno. And Billy says, What? You heard me. (laughs) And then she fully fucks him. And then he touched the butt. And then he touched the butt. Wow. And she, at the time of all of this madness, Mm -hmm. is relieved of her innocence. She has broken the major final girl rule. There are many rules that final girls are supposed to, like, adhere to there are you probably shouldn't drink you probably shouldn't do drugs you should probably as wholesome as possible to to increase your odds yes but you are allowed to break one of the rules the only rule you are not allowed to break until this film is final girl does not have sex that she is is not sexual true you can't be sexual as soon as you're sexual you are a target and billy and steven reference this later but it, it it feels so intelligent for Billy to take Sydney's virginity before they decide to actually go with the killing because that doesn't matter legally speaking in any way, shape, or form. But in Billy's own twisted mind, he's trying to keep it so close to the horror films that, that he does love that he wants her to not be a virgin when he kills her. Right. And I love that attention to detail. It's so good. And it's kind of, uh, you know, kind of, well, and I, I guess in, uh, on, on that straw, it, mm-hmm. by him desiring her to not be a virgin in order to kill her and right. and all those things it really plays into the illusion that they have created for themselves and sort of the game mm-hmm. and kind of plays into you know we need to do it these this way and that <clears throat> probably increases the fun for him and increases the the rush for the whole situation mm-hmm. as he's he's going in and he's he's attempting to get this from her and he's staying in her life while knowing that he killed her mom and so on and so forth. It's just there's got to be a, a some sort of a twisted rush for the dude. It's all just so well done. I really really love it. Right. And with the loss of Sydney's innocence. We come to the end of Act Two of the film. With the opening of her legs, we close this episode. And I cannot wait because next episode we get into all the most iconic scenes from the film. And this last act is one of the best last acts I think uh, modern horror has to offer. It's really the top. It's going to be great. You guys ought to stick around. Very much so.